Let's all turn back to 1 Corinthians, Paul's epistle to 1 Corinthians, chapter number 4. Last time I was with you, I began a message entitled, The Judgment of a Minister. And time did not permit me to finish the exposition of the first five verses of this chapter. So, Lord willing, we will finish that this evening. We'll finish chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This evening, by the grace of our God, and by the ministry of the clock. So, I'll read for you verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And it brings me great joy to say these are the words of God. Amen. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. Previously, we considered the minister's character and the minister's criteria from verses 1 and 2. And we noted that the quintessential mandate issued to the gospel minister is true and abiding faithfulness. A steward of the mysteries of God, a minister of Christ must be faithful to that which he is called. But not ministers only. All of God's children have been birthed into his family, have been translated into his kingdom. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the imperative upon your life is that you are faithful to that calling. Faithfulness must be the defining characteristic of God's people how much more so must it be the defining characteristic of gospel ministers? And if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you know nothing of faithfulness. You know nothing of faithfulness because you have nothing to be faithful to. You are unstable in all your ways. You are tossed to and fro. You're lost. That's what it means to be lost. To have no directive. To have no purpose. To be drifting about from one sinful venture to one sinful venture one bondage of darkness to another bondage of darkness. Only when you experience the light of Jesus Christ, you come to know Him as, as Lord and as Master. And when He is the, the purpose for which you wake up in the morning, the purpose for which you live out your day, the purpose for, for which you go and move, only then will you be able to have experiential faithfulness in your life. Furthermore, this faithfulness that the Apostle exhorts us to is not something that is achieved instantaneously. There's no quick step plan to becoming faithful. Faithfulness is something that must be maintained, must be worked on, must be tried and forged and hardened throughout the duration of our life. I said two weeks ago in your hearing, the Christian life is not a series of 100-yard dashes. It is a marathon. And it is not so much 
That's how you launch off the starting block that matters with God. It is how you finish that matters with God. I've seen so many Christians, the Lord converts them, and they're just gung-ho, and they're zealous, and they would, they would take the world for Christ for about the first two weeks. And then they slack off, and their growth is stunted, and they don't accomplish any of those things that they vowed to accomplish when the Lord first converted them. That's not faithfulness. Faithfulness is how you're running when you're long into the race. When the trials start to come. When the road starts getting rocky. When the, when the path starts getting crooked. How are you progressing? How are you going on? Sometimes we think faithfulness is like whipping out a thousand dollar bill and laying it on the table and saying, here's my life, God, take it. But in reality, Christian faithfulness is more like taking that $1,000, going to the bank, cashing it in for quarters, and then throughout the rest of your life, 25 cents here, 50 cents there, a dollar there, a nickel there. See, it would be, it would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It would be easy to, to go out in an instance of martyrdom, and we would say, what a faithful Christian. But the ordinary calling of God is for us to be faithful over the long haul. To give our life day by day, moment by moment. Attend a prayer meeting. There's 25 cents there. Progress in your intake of the Word of God. There's 50 cents there. Become a, a, a better churchman. Become a better leader of your home. Become a better servant of your family. That is just as faithful as the martyr who goes out burning at the stake. Christian faithfulness over the long haul. That is what what the passage is calling us to. Now because there is a present task, because there is a right now obligation, we, we can know that there is a coming evaluation. Anytime God, listen to me, anytime God commands something of you in the Word, in the Scriptures, know of a surety that there is coming a day in which you will be tested on whether or not you obeyed or disobeyed whatever that commandment is. And this is what we will now turn our attention to. Last, last time we considered the minister's character and criteria. And this evening we'll consider the minister's critics, the minister's conscience, and the minister's commendation. What is the result of lifelong faithful service? How does it all end? I, I believe that sometimes we discourage the sheep when all we preach is imperative, imperative, imperative. Do, do, do. Go, go, go. But we never tell them the, the, the glorious part of that whole command is that there's coming a day in which that command will be fulfilled. The Christian life is not an eternity of drudgery. There's coming a day in which our labors will be done. Our, our, our rest will come to us. We will lay down the garments of our warfare and we'll enter into rest. So what is the result of lifelong faithfulness? Furthermore, what is the consequence of unfaithfulness? 
What is it that determines the true worth of a gospel minister? Who will make this judgment? When will this revelation, when will this disclosure occur? That is what we will consider tonight as we look at verses 3 to 5. So beginning there in verse 3, I want you to see the minister's critics. The minister's critics. Fidelity presupposes responsibility. Faithfulness presupposes accountability. If you are to be faithful, there must be someone that you are to be faithful to. And in verse 3, Paul lists for us several false and illegitimate critics. There are some who will try to claim your faithfulness who you should not be faithful to. And then he reveals the only one truly qualified to judge gospel ministers and by extension all Christians. So who are these three false critics that Paul identifies? Well, he's going to talk about other Christians. He's going to talk about the world in general. He's going to talk about you yourself. Look at it in verse 3. He says this, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you. And he's, this you here are the believers at the church in Corinth. That those attending the church in Corinth. And Paul says, you are not my judge. You are a false critic. I am not accountable to you. I am not going to be faithful to you. In the sense of faithfulness in this passage. Other Christians are not the ones to whom we must give an account. We may safely denote from this verse that Paul received his fair share of criticism from the Corinthians. Paul found himself in a very familiar position for Christian ministers, being criticized by the very people that you were called to serve and minister unto. Paul finds himself, here he is, exercising an exuberant amount of patience, trying to lead along this ragtag band of Corinthians. He's trying to herd cats in Corinth. And are they thankful? Do they say, wow, we really were in a mess. Look at all the atrocities going on in our church. Thanks, Paul, for coming along and helping us out. Do they do that? No. Paul's not alone. Such is the case with many ministers in many churches. The very ones Paul was called to serve and Paul was called to love and Paul was called to help turned right around and criticized him. And Paul was falsely accused and wrongly criticized by proud and ignorant Corinthians. Now how did Paul respond to that? Did Paul, did Paul throw in the towel? Did Paul respond in kind? I'm fed up with you. I've had enough of you. I'm going to the church down the road. They treat me nicer and they have a better retirement plan. No, he said, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you. Very small thing. It doesn't really matter to me. Paul said in 2021, I don't care what you think. He knew that he did not ultimately answer to the preferences and opinions of other Christians. He knew that his ministry would not be graded on the basis of how well he was liked. Therefore, he did not allow the petty criticism 
of the Corinthians to hinder him from faithfully performing his duties. Now, must throw in this caution. Paul is not here saying that he was not obligated to be faithful to the Corinthians in the sense of he was a servant unto them. He was God's minister sent to minister unto them. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's not saying that he's not obligated to do the duties of a pastor to that church. He, he, he very much was. And we've seen that already as we saw in chapter 2 and 3 how Paul expounded upon the apostolic ministry in the pastoral office. Right? That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying that he, he was not obligated to care for the sheep at Corinth. But what he's saying here is that he is not obligated to run around and to serve their every little whim and fancy. He was not obligated especially to cater to their carnal interests and their carnal tastes. Paul was to serve them and be faithful to them according to the word of God, but when they desired something in church that did not align with the word of God, it was Paul's responsibility to be the bad guy and say, no, we're not going to have that. We're not going to have that. And I have heard more than I could count pastors getting up and and beating their chest and talking about how bold they are and how they're going to protect the sheep and they're not going to let this false doctrine get into their church and uh, they're not they don't care what you think we're going to do it this way my way or the highway and they browbeat the sheep but that's really pseudo courage because anyone who's ever been in this position, any pastor who's ever been in this position, where he has people sitting under his preaching and his pastoral ministry that he loves and cares for dearly, but they are venturing into dangerous territory, and then he has to be the one that steps in and to say, brother, sister, I love you, but we cannot go along with this. No pastor enjoys having to do that. Right. It is his duty to do that. It is his obligation to do that, but it is a very painful thing to have to do. Yeah. And so Paul says here, because he is so obligated, because he is so committed to his calling, to his apostolic ministry, Paul says, it's a very small thing for me to be judged of you. Your criticisms will not deter me from being faithful to what I am called to do. So the first false critic then is other Christians. Other Christians. Other church members. But then the second one, also in verse 3, the world in general. The world in general. Because he says it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Or of man's judgment. If a minister will not finally answer to other Christians, then he certainly will not answer to the world in general. The world hates the true servants of Christ, by the way. Jesus said, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Know that it hated me first. See, we, we ought not be surprised when the world mocks and despises and degrades our commitment to Christ. We don't preach the gospel 
because the world likes Jesus, we preach the gospel because the world hates Jesus. And unless they repent and believe the gospel, they will perish in their hatred of Jesus. And they will be judged by Jesus. And we do not desire to see any hater of Jesus have to stand before him on that day. The Bible says judgment is mine, I will repay. But just as God is not delighted in the destruction of the wicked, neither should we be. And again, that is a hard soul check that we must make in and of ourselves. Especially those of us who are engaged in public ministry. Those of us who do go out, who do preach the gospel, who do pass out those tracts. Because you will meet people that in your carnal thoughts and desires, you're, you're looking forward to the day that they're destroyed for their hatred of Christ. But what we should really desire is for these people to be broken and smitten and for their hatred to be taken away from them and be replaced by love for Jesus Christ. But we cannot allow ourselves to shy away from our obligations to serve Christ because what the world might think about us. See, we will never fully win over the favor of this world. But brothers and sisters, it will not be to the world that we give an account When you hand out a tract and someone scoffs at you and throws it right back at you, you're not going to answer to that person on the last day. When you preach the gospel and and you're given the finger, you're not going to answer to that person on the last day. But when a church cares more about pleasing the world than they do about pleasing God, they are committing idolatry. Idolatry. Let me draw this a little closer to home. When you are reluctant to share of your faith in Jesus Christ because of what others might think, you are committing idolatry. That is a very serious sin to commit. You're you're no better than Peter. Well, I saw you down at church Sunday night. No, that wasn't me. No better than Peter. May we have the fortitude to not cave before an unbelieving world. Because when we cave before an unbelieving world, do you know what we're saying? We're saying, God, in this instance, I value the temporal approving and, and, and commendation of this lost unbeliever in front of me more than I do your commendation and approval. There's not anyone here tonight that is not guilty of that. We don't want to be thought of as a Christian. That's not cool. We don't want to be thought of as a church member. Oh, they might think I'm some kind of extremist. They might think I'm crazy. They might think I'm out of touch with reality. They might call me a bigot. Well, they called our Lord far worse and treated him far worse but Jesus Christ did not care about the approval of the Jews or the approval of the Romans or the approval of the religious elite or the approval of the in crowd 
He cared about the approval of his heavenly father. And he was faithful to his heavenly father until the very end. We must, we must not waver before an unbelieving world because we do not answer to an unbelieving world. And, and this message, brothers and sisters, should free us. What liberty we find in this message. This frees us from ever, from the courts of public opinion. We are no longer obligated to appease the world. We're no longer obligated to, to please those around us. We do not have to dress for them. We do not have to listen to their music to get in with them. We don't have to watch their movies to be accepted in them. We don't need any of that. We don't need their entertainment. We don't need their fun. We have our own fun. We have our own joy. Our joy is Christ. Our joy is doing things that honor Him. I'm not saying that we have to... Just because you look weird does not mean you're always righteous. That's not what I'm saying. Because you live... Like a cult does not always mean that you are one either, though. (laughs) The guiding principle in your life, in all things, food, drink, raiment, decisions, how you spend your time, it should just simply be, what would God have me to do? What would be pleasing to Him and glorifying to Him? What what would find His approval? And then do that. And if, if that corresponds with something that an unbeliever does, then do it in peace. We, 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 we definitely don't want to be antinomian. We don't want to, to think that, that there, there is no abiding moral law that we must obey and follow. We don't want to go down that road. But we don't, also don't want to go down the crusty puritanical route of thinking that anything our lost neighbor does is sin, therefore I can't do anything he does. We don't want to go down that road either. We want to go down the, the road of liberty in Christ. And, and what is Christian liberty? It is the liberty... Not to be as sinful as you can be and still be saved. No, Christian liberty is the liberty to love and to serve Jesus Christ and to walk as closely with Him as you can and to be as near to Him as you can and to be as like Him as you can and to love every minute of it. That's Christian liberty. Because when you were lost, when you were unconverted, you hated Jesus and everything to do with Him. You didn't want to be like Him. You wanted nothing to do with Him. But now that you have been converted and brought into his fold, now you love to be like him. You want to be like him. And the world is not your critic. Other Christians are not your critic. Do not compare yourself to other people that call themselves Christian. Compare yourself to Jesus Christ. Other Christians are not your critic. The world is not your critic. But then the last one in verse verse 3. You are not your own critic. You yourself are not your own critic. Paul says, But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Then what does he say? He says, Yea, I judge not mine own self. See, a lot of people really like the first two, but they don't like the third one. Oh yeah, I'm not going to let the world judge me. I'm not going to let... Other Christians judge me. Nobody can judge me, but but I'll judge me. I will make the decision as to whether I'm doing something that is right or wrong or whether I'm going the way that I should go or the way I shouldn't go. I'll make that decision for myself. And Paul says, no, you're, no, no, you're not. 
You can't make that decision for yourself. You're not qualified to make that decision for yourself. And I think this is especially applicable in our context to that of gospel ministers. A minister should never place his trust in his own opinion of himself. And there's perhaps, in a sense, there's perhaps nothing more antithetical to the Christian worldview than living as if you are the final authority on your own life. Living as if you will be the one that ultimately decides the worth of your life in ministry. You're putting yourself into a position that you were never meant to be and really you're putting yourself into bondage. You're putting yourself into a place of dangerous autonomy and self-government. The minister does this when he says, "I, I don't need the input of anyone else. I don't need the input of, of any outside force. I'm just going to make decisions about myself and my ministry and I'm going to go with, with what I have decided. You do this when you say the same thing about your own life. I don't need the church. I don't need preaching. I don't need to read what men have written. I'm just going to make decisions for myself and judge myself and grade myself. And Paul says, you're not a fit judge of yourself. Paul reminds the Corinthians over and over again, you are bought with a price. You are not your own. Why can't you judge yourself? Because you don't even belong to yourself. Jesus has purchased you with his own blood. You have no right to live unto yourself. You have no right to die unto yourself. You definitely don't have the right to judge yourself. If you live, you live for Christ. When you die, you'll die in Christ. And when you are judged, you'll be judged by Christ. And all Christians, ministers especially, they will always live amidst the tension of their critics. And if we do not remember who we belong to, who owns us, who we serve, then these critics... They can quickly have us feeling defeated, beaten down, and ready to quit. I, I, I've known several pastors who've made it a habit in their ministry, who've made it a practice to just, they refuse to make major decisions on Monday mornings. Amen. Why? Because Monday mornings, all three of those critics, other Christians, the world, yourself, yelling, Back and forth. You're not fit to make those decisions. We must realize that God, not other Christians, not the world, not even ourselves, is the one and only one who will ultimately judge us. We must remember that the criticism from other men and women is only helpful in as far as it points us to the principles of God contained in His Word. When I say that other Christians are not your judge, I'm not saying that you should completely ignore anything your brothers and sisters have to say to you. That is foolishness. But understand that that counsel is only as helpful as it points you back to this book and the one who wrote it. Now, I feel compelled to include a caution about, about criticism, about the criticism, especially of churches and their pastors. Because I'm sure that many of us, sitting here this evening, know someone who now 
refuses to go to church, refuses to have anything to do with any type of organized religion because of a bad experience they had, either with someone in church or a pastor. So what I want to say to you is be very careful about how you speak of churches and of ministers, especially in front of family and friends. Even bad churches, even unfaithful ministers, they do exist, and you have experienced them. But you need to ensure that your disdain for that does not turn into bitterness that would hinder a brother or sister. When you go home from church and you eat the pastor for lunch, don't be surprised when your children grow up and don't want to go to church. When all your unbelieving friend ever hears is how bad other churches are, all he ever hears is you complain about all these bad churches out there, why would he ever want to be a Christian? Make sure that as you explain the problems and dangers of certain churches and certain ministers, and I'm not telling you not to do that, especially in the context of where we're at today, but make sure that as you do that, you also praise God for faithful churches and faithful ministers. They do exist. They do exist. There, there is a such thing as a good church, not a perfect church. There is a such thing as a good church with, which God is pleased with, which God is present and ministering in, which you should be a member of. There is a such thing as that, and there is a such thing as faithful ministers. God help us to be one. Help us to be that. And by the way, while I'm on this rabbit trail, I might as well kill the rabbit. And by the way, if you are not participating in a faithful ministry, if you're not actively seeking out a faithful church, a, a faithful pastor to sit under, you really don't have any right or reason to complain about the bad ones. It's the minister's critics. The minister's critics, but... Look at verse 4. I want you to see the minister's conscience. And Paul really, in this verse, he's kind of just expounding on the platform he built up in verse 3. He's explaining why he does not judge himself. And he says in verse 4, For I know nothing by myself. In other words, expounding on that last clause of verse 3, Paul is saying that his conscience is not guilty of any known sins. He says, I, I know nothing by myself. I, 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 I do not realize, I've not been made aware of any unconfessed sin that is being harbored in my heart. I, I know no wrongdoing that I am guilty of. And, and this is a good thing. This is a needful thing. Having a clear conscience before God. You will never be able to perform your Christian duties. And ministers should never attempt to perform ministerial duties while harboring unconfessed sin in their hearts. <coughs> but even a clear conscience is not a sufficient judge of our standing before God. It is not a definitive test of how we stand before God. Because Paul says, I know nothing by myself. My conscience is clear, Paul says, yet am I not hereby justified? Paul did not receive his clear conscience as definitive proof of his right standing before God. 
See, we may justify ourselves and yet be condemned of God. Far too often, we do a, a, very, a very brief and a very quick and a very overview sketch of our own hearts and lives and standings before God and we, we do this very quick evaluation of ourselves and we judge ourselves to be guiltless before God and then we turn to look at everyone else. I was reading one of the Puritans, it might have been Swinock, who said, before praying, before seeking to prepare yourself for service, you must first hunt out your sins. You must consider your sins. You must consider your transgressions. You must hunt them out of the foxholes that they hide in. You must hunt them out from under the rocks that they disguise themselves underneath. You must dig them out and you must deal with them. Your clear conscience is not sufficient to prove that you have a right standing before God. Now all of these things, counsel from other Christians, self-assessment, the conscious, what these are, they're merely indicators. They're merely indicators. It's like, you know, you're driving down the road and your check engine light comes on. Now that doesn't tell you what the problem is. That just tells you there is a problem. They're indicators. God has given us these indicators. Preaching is an indicator. Counsel from others is an indicator. Your conscience is an indicator. But they're not an infallible diagnosis. Their trustworthiness is limited. So, so how do we get to the diagnosis? How do we get to the root of the problem? Well, Paul says at the end of verse 4, But he that judgeth me is the Lord. He that judgeth me is the Lord. At the end of the day, at the end of your life, at the end of your ministry, the Lord's judgment is the only judgment that matters. Notice that this judgment is in the present perfect tense. What does that mean? That means that the Lord is our judge right now. He judgeth. E-T-H. He judgeth. He is our judge right now. Yet He will conduct a final judgment on an appointed day still to come. And the only way, listen, the only way that we can have true assurance that we will be right with Him then is if we are right with Him now. You who put it off. You who say, yes, I know that I have a problem. Yes, I know that I'm not where I ought to be. I'll get there someday. Well, you have no assurance to believe that you will ever get there if you are not there now. Remember this. If you please God, it doesn't matter who you displease. But if you displease God, it doesn't matter who you please. As you're putting off faithfulness, if you're putting off service, because you still have some wild oats to sow, you still have some things that you've yet to experience, and, and you want to get that over with so that you can then go on to live a life for the Lord Jesus Christ, how do you know you'll ever get the opportunity to live a life for the Lord Jesus Christ? But if God is beckoning upon your heart to draw near unto Him, run to Him while you can. It's the minister's conscience. It's an indicator. Your Christian, your conscience is an indicator. But your conscience is not sufficient. The counsel from others is not sufficient. The world's opinion of you is not sufficient. He that judgeth you is the Lord. 
And then lastly, I want you to see the minister's commendation in verse 5. The minister's commendation in verse 5. Now this passage concludes in an interesting manner. Because often when we think of judgment, especially the judgment of God, what do we think of? We think of destruction and fire and and terror and, and, and death. We assume that the end of destruction, or the end of judgment is destruction, eternal condemnation. But remember, as we looked at, when we looked at this passage two weeks ago, these verses are primarily dealing with the judgment of ministers specifically and Christians in general. This is not speaking of the judgment of unbelievers. So let me encourage you with this. The judgment of God, the reality of God's judgment on His people is convicting to us, but it is not condemning to us. It should cause you to search your heart, but it should not cause you to be terrified and dismayed. The consummate judgment of God is a comfort to Christians, not a terror. Judgment is not always a bad topic to speak of. It's not always a discouraging topic to speak of. But the truth that there's coming a day in which God will evaluate you and try you, if you are His, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, that should be a joyous thing to consider. Consider how Paul brings these verses to a climax in verse 5. He says this, Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. See, we ought not pass judgment as if we are the ultimate deciders. For Paul, there is one judge and one judgment with which he is concerned. And that is the judgment conducted by God at the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is the one that matters. Notice the infallible description of this judgment. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. Watch this. Who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness. And, so there's two things happening here. And will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. These are the two defining aspects of the Lord's judgment that only He is able to perform. See, man's judgment, your judgment is insufficient because of limited evidence. Man can only judge that which he sees, and he only sees that which is external. But the Lord sees that which is hidden. The Lord sees that which is concealed in the depths of the heart. Not only does the Lord see what we do in darkness, but he's also going to bring it to light. He will bring to light the hidden things of darkness. And darkness in the scriptures often has a sinful connotation, but I don't think that's what this is referring to. Darkness in this passage simply refers to the things that we do which are unseen by other people, by other men and women. They are hidden in darkness. And the sense is this, that when the Lord comes, He will vindicate His people, and He will do so, by exposing the things that they did that went unseen by others. This is why you do not have to flaunt your Christianity. 
This is why those who do religious deeds to be seen of men will have their reward on earth, but will not have it in heaven. If you live a consistent and sincere Christian life, that will be on display at the final judgment. Because this judgment does not just stop at our deeds. This judgment does not just stop at the things that everyone knew about us. This judgment tries the deepest motives of our heart. And it's not just what you do that God cares about. He cares about why you do it. Man looks upon the outward appearance, but God judges the heart. And again, brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is not scary for you. This is not scary for the faithful minister. What this means for you is that while the world is mocking and despising and hurling accusations at you and falsely accusing you and slandering you and dragging your name through the mud, it means that God sees your inner desire to please Him and that He is satisfied with you. He understands the frame of your heart. Be not discouraged when other men misunderstand you. Be not frustrated when unbelievers think you're a fool. Be not dismayed when your loved ones turn their back on you because of your commitment to follow Christ. Be not disheartened when you are castigated and ridiculed by those who do not possess the same faith in Christ that you do. Be not hopeless when you seek to serve Christ but find yourself unable to always do what you desire to do. Be not heartbroken when after sharing the gospel time and time again with loved ones they still do not believe. Do not be discouraged by these things, brothers and sisters. Be assured of this. God sees the counsels of your heart. No matter how miserably you might fail, no matter how ugly your ongoing bout with sin may be, God looks upon the desires of your heart. God sees your inner longing to be like Jesus. God sees your thirsting after righteousness. God sees your struggle to do that which God has pleased with. God sees your striving after holiness. Though outwardly it may seem like you're making very little progress. God sees the fire within you. And God is pleased with you. God sees your yearning after Him. God sees the love that you have for the one that gave His life for you. And He is delighted in you when He sees those things. You will not be judged by the number of converts that you had on a sheet of paper. You will not be judged by the applause that you receive from men. You will not be judged by even the reputation that you have maintained with other ministers or other Christians. You will be judged by God alone. And on that day, there will be one book of judgment opened up and it will be the Word of God. And the only thing that will matter was how faithful were you to what thus said the Lord. And because of this, because of the simplicity of divine judgment, because of the singularity of the sovereign and omnipotent judge, Paul is able to end this verse with this glorious statement. Then shall every man have praise of God. Then shall every man have praise of God. Again, the, the every man refers to the men we've considered in the context of this passage. Obviously, for the unbeliever, 
the thought of God trying your, hinder, your hidden works and the secret desires of your heart is a fearful thing. And if you are here tonight, and if you are without Jesus Christ, may, may, this, may this wreak the inner peace within your soul to think that God will one day expose the works of your heart. And those without Christ, I pray that you are caused to repent and to run to Calvary at the very idea of this coming judgment. Oh, but for those in Christ, brothers and sisters, is this not the day for which we all long? Is this not the day that we desire with everything in us? The day when the struggle is over. The day when the battle is won. The day when the race is run. When your labor on earth is ended. When, when Christ has brought in the fullness of His people. When the wicked have been destroyed. When the curse has been removed. When all enemies have been subdued under the feet of Christ. Then, then shall every man have praise from God. It almost sounds sacrilegious. I mean, it almost feels idolatrous to preach this. But that's what the Bible says. God will praise His people. I cannot explain all that will take place when this happens, but I don't think it's just going to be a casual attaboy. I really don't. I I don't think it's going to be just a simple, you're accepted, come on in. (coughs) I think it's going to be sincere, heartfelt, joyous praise. And what keeps it from being sacrilegious is this. God will be praising you for the work of His Son within you. What a day that will be, brothers and sisters. What a day that will be. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. All the, the trials, all the struggles, all the heartbreak, all the things that right now in this life, it makes us wonder, why am I even doing this, God? It will all be worth it on this day. So I ask you, do you long for this day? Believer, do you, you sit here tonight longing for this day. You, you're not afraid of standing before God. You're not terrified to think that God will try the desires of your heart because you know the desires of your heart. You know that no matter how short you may fall, you know what your desires are. If you do long for that day, let me tell you, this day will only be sweet to you if you are laboring hard now in anticipation for it. Amen. Christians who sit idly by, Christians who, who sit twiddling their thumbs, who do nothing for the cause of Christ, they will be sorely disappointed on this day. They will be saved so as by fire, as Paul said earlier in chapter 3. But those who worked hard for the advancement of the gospel for the glory of Christ, they shall receive this divine approbation. But I understand that there are some of you here tonight that do not long for this day. Because the very thought of this day is terrifying for you. You are not prepared for this day. And you know that if you stood before God, He wouldn't praise you He would condemn you. Perhaps you understand something of your awful state before God. And maybe you're trying to work yourself in a better relationship with Him. You're trying to clean yourself up and make yourself fit 
to stand before Him. And you think that if you can only do enough good before this day comes, then God will praise you. But dear friend, God has never and will never praise anyone for anything that they have done in and of themselves. You don't need more works. You don't need more good deeds. You don't need more money given to charity. You need Jesus Christ. He is the only one that will prepare you and make you fit to stand before God on this day. He is the only one that will clothe you in sinless, righteous garments that God will look at and approve of. He is the only one that that will transform the desires of your heart and the counsels of your soul and will cause you to long for this day. You will not be able to make yourself ready for this day. But brothers and sisters, it is my joy to announce to you, you who are without Christ, that Christ stands ready and willing to receive him, you unto himself. All who come by faith, Amen. he will receive you. He will clothe you. He will cleanse you. He will hide you behind the work of the cross so that when you stand before God on that day, God will praise you and God will be pleased with you and God will be satisfied with you because He will see His Son in you. Turn to Christ. Flee to Christ with a repentant faith. Cry out to Him and receive Him and you will be praised of God on this day. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for Your goodness to us. Oh, Lord, how we love you. Oh, how you've been so good to us. How you have been so faithful to us. Great is thy faithfulness, O oh God, my Father. Your faithfulness was displayed when you sent your Son into the world to die on Calvary's cross, to shed his blood for all those who would believe in him. May we look upon our faithful Savior and may that faithfulness transform the way we live our Christian lives. May you empower us to serve you with greater veracity than ever before. Conform us into your image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. amen.